I thought it would be good during the, our services just uh, to hear uh, from one of our parishioners. And I've asked uh, Jessica Clark to share a little bit of her story with us. Jessica is a member of the church. And Jessica, why don't you take it away? Okay. Hi, everyone. Hello. <laughs> um, I hope you're all doing well. So as David said, he asked me to um, share a little bit. Um, with you all about my journey over the past year, which uh, some of you already know. Um, so I'm start. Um, so last year, and um, when the announcements were made about the missions trip, our annual missions trip to Kenya, um, I heard a prompting to go much clearer than anything I'd ever heard from God. With each announcement, when I sat with the idea in prayer, it was very clear to me. And throughout the subsequent mission preparation meetings we had, nothing made me doubt that. During the preparations and getting all the vaccinations, it occurred to me that I had not had a check-in with my doctor in some time, and I thought it might be a good idea to get a baseline on my health before traveling outside the country. So I scheduled an appointment for a physical exam. That was July 1st. My doctor discovered a lump she sent me on for an ultrasound, which turned into more tests and biopsies. And on July 15th, I found out I had cancer. Based on the preliminary report, my, my doctor thought it would still be okay for me to travel for a few weeks. However, a few days later, I had my first appointment with an oncologist. The pathology report had been amended and it showed that the cancer was aggressive and needed to be treated as soon as possible. Having cancer was hard news, but I was still in shock. It was when it got through to me that I could not travel unless I wanted to risk further complications that I got angry. I really didn't understand why God would call me to serve in this capacity and then not be able to go. But even then, and even more so now, I knew that if I had not been preparing to travel, if I had not been listening to this call, that I would not have gone to the doctor for many more months. From August through December, I went through chemotherapy. My oncology team was optimistic about my treatment results. It appeared the cancer was shrinking, but there was no way to confirm until I had surgery, uh, which I did on February 7th. I was very hopeful going into that surgery that God had healed me and on February 13th received the final pathology report that no cancer was found remaining. So that was a huge answer to prayer and thank you all for your many prayers for me. Since surgery, I've been at home for recovery. I was preparing to return to work as we all received news that a widespread epidemic had been declared a pandemic. So there went my plans to get back into the normal routine of work and gatherings and friends and travel to see my family. Two verses that I returned to time and again this past fall and which I continue to hold on to in these uncertain times are one, one from Psalm 31. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. And from Psalm 39, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. I know that I can be certain in God, even when I may not know what that means. If I hadn't been planning on going to Kenya, I don't know when my cancer would have been discovered or how much further it would have spread. 
If I hadn't listened to my doctors and delayed things, I would still be in treatment now and in a much more vulnerable state of health. My mom wouldn't have been able to travel to be with me before and after my surgery. The list goes on. So many scriptures, particularly in the Psalms and the Gospels, were meaningful to me during my journey. But the one my Bible now naturally falls open to is Psalm 23. The valley of the shadow of death took on a new meaning for me. But mostly I would recite that first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some translations phrase it, I have what I need. When I didn't have the words, I would focus on that phrase. I shall not want, I have what I need, even when it didn't feel that way. When I didn't have the words for prayer, sometimes I would find the words of others. This prayer inspired by Psalm 23 was written by George Matheson, a 19th century Scottish pastor. He wrote, Restore my soul, O God. There are green pastures around me for which my eye has no lens. There are quiet waters beside me for which my ear has no cord. Restore my soul. The path on which I go is already the path of your righteousness. Open my eyes that I may behold its windows. The place I call dreadful is even now the house of the Lord. The heavens shall cease to hide you when you have restored my soul. May I be content to know that goodness and mercy shall follow me without waiting to see them in advance of me. My family and friends, my communities at Christ the King and elsewhere um, were my support during this time. And I know that our community here, even virtually, will support each other through this new season and that God will be our shepherd. Thanks. Thank you, Jessica. I don't know if you have a copy of that prayer um, handy. Yeah, I can drop it in the chat. Drop it in the chat. That's a very beautiful prayer. Please do so. Yeah, okay, will do. Okay. We're now going to turn our thoughts to God's word, and so let me lead us in prayer. Oh God, may the words of my lips, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We'll reflect this uh, morning on the passage from 1 Samuel, um, a very important passage, and I'm going to make two simple points. One, I'm going to observe with you God's ways, how God works, uh, and second, God's goal, why he works the way he does. And so those two points will be uh, guide our thoughts for this morning. Uh, so let's think about that first question as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. How does God work? Um, I guess the first thing I would suggest that God's work, God's ways are never like our ways. He doesn't work like we think he is going to work. Uh, So kids, you may know the story of uh, three Billy Goats Gruff, yes? And three Billy Goats Gruff gives a great description of how the world works. So let's think about the story. These three Billy goats, uh, they want to get where? They want to go to the green grass. But in order to get to the green grass, where do they have to go? Susie? Um, Over a bridge. bridge. That's right. Susie, maybe you can come here and you can help me tell the story. So they have to go over a bridge, but 
There's a problem. Susie, what's the problem? Under the bridge is what? Uh, a, tr a troll. A troll. A troll, right? So they've, they've got a big problem. They can't get over the bridge because there's a big bad troll on, oh, under the bridge. So who's going to fix the problem, do you think? Is the cute little, little Billy Goat going to fix the problem? Nope. He's kind of cute and fuzzy, which is nice, but not very good if you're facing a troll, right? Is the second Billy Goat going to fix the problem? Well, why have the second Billy Goat fix the problem if you have the third, the big Billy Goat fix the problem? And that's exactly what happens. The big Billy Goat Gruff takes on the troll and beats him up because he is the biggest and he is the best and he is the most powerful. And friends, that is how the world works. That is how we work. That is our ways. Bigger is better. Stronger is better. Richer is better. Prettier, smarter, wiser is better. The biggest Billy Goat Gruff is the best Billy Goat because he is the biggest. But God's ways are not like our ways. So here's a passage that we looked at, and it's a, you just saw a lot of words. You can hop to your chair, sweetie. Uh, you can see a lot of words, but it's an important passage in which the prophet Samuel goes to uh, anoint a king out of the house of Jesse. God says in Jesse's home, I see a king. And so Samuel goes to anoint the king. And Samuel sees Eliab. Eliab is one of uh, Jesse's sons, eight sons. And Eliab is the eldest. We're not told anything about Eliab. But we can infer by Samuel's reaction, Samuel saw Eliab as the biggest and the best and the strongest and thought, aha, there is the big Billy Goat Gruff. Surely uh, the Lord's annoyed, the Lord's anointed stands here. Why? Because he is the biggest. But, of course, God does not choose Eliab, nor does he choose son number two, the second biggest, the second strongest, the second wisest, nor does he choose number three, four, five, six. He doesn't even, in the Bible, the number seven is a number of perfection. He doesn't even choose number seven. He chooses number eight. Little David, who is the runt of the family, kind of like Cinderella. Cinderella's out scrubbing the floors. David's out tending the sheep, and God chooses him, the youngest, the smallest, the weakest, uh, to be the anointed king. God's ways are not like our ways. And God's interaction with, uh, with David through Samuel is not just one-off. Uh, this is all throughout the Bible. The childless Abraham is a father of nations. The barren Sarah, the mother, uh, the second son Jacob over the first son, the stuttering Moses as the messenger, fearful Gideon as God's deliverer, a virgin Mary as the mother of God, 12 nobodies as a disciple, uh, a persecutor of Christians, uh, that being Paul, as his chief apostles. God's ways are not like our ways. He always uses surprising ways. He uses the weak things of the world to overcome the strong. And this is, class, where is this place where we see this most clearly displayed? In Jesus, and especially in his cross. The cross is, if anything, by every human measurement, Weakness. Jesus, vulnerable, uh, starved, naked on the cross. It is the picture of weakness, but as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, those things that look weak to us are really to those who are called the power of God. So that is how God's ways, that is how he works. He almost always uses ways that we would not choose in order to accomplish his will. He uses the weak things of the world. He uses our weaknesses. He uses weak times to accomplish his purposes. Now, why? Why does God work this way? Does God just like an underdog? 
may be. But I think in this passage, we're told a little bit of why God uses the weak things of the world to go overcome the strong. So back to our passage, we have a hint of why God uses the weak things of the world. It's right there in the passage I highlighted. It's because God does not look at you and me the way that we measure things. God looks at We look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God's goal is to transform the heart. And this, again, is throughout the the Bible. Uh, God is concerned with the inner person, the soul, the heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. A great uh, passage from Lent. And the thing about weak people, people who are experiencing weakness or a period of weakness or a period of anxiety, they learn something that strong people don't have to learn. Weak people learn to trust in God. That's all they have. Whereas strong people may never learn to trust in God. Rich people, wise people, they never have to because they simply don't need to. They've got it all put together. The problem with being strong or wise or rich is there's always someone stronger, wiser, or richer. And so this story continues in Genesis, uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, and Eliab, the strongest of brothers, encounters someone who's stronger than him. That's Goliath. And when he does, when Eliab encounters Goliath, Eliab and everybody else is afraid. But little David, David's always been the youngest. He's always been the weakest. So when he encounters Goliath, he is completely unafraid. He's learned to trust in God. So here's the point. Sometimes that we think are good, every, sometimes we think look good, strength, riches, uh, lack of worry. These things are not always good for the heart. Do you know this fellow here on the bottom right-hand corner? That's St. Augustine. He lived around the year 354, 430. He lived at the peak and then the decline of the Roman Empire. There you see the Roman uh, Colosseum. And the the nation of Rome had everything. Uh, They had wealth. They had prosperity. They had security. The last of their enemies, that being uh, uh, the the city of Carthage, uh, was destroyed right before... uh, uh, St. Augustine lived and wrote, and they, they simply had no concerns. They had, by every physical, every uh, earthly measure, they had a great. No concerns. But St. Aug- Augustine looks at this uh, condition and says, you know, that's actually not good for the soul. It's not good for the heart to have everything that you need. So he wrote uh, this book, The City of God. If you're bored, if you have time on your hands during your uh, quarantine, Pick up this one. I've managed to make it through right about there. Uh, very insightful. He writes that he, uh, 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 that he feared the security. He feared security, that enemy of the weak mind. And he perceived that a wholesome fear would be a fit guardians for citizens. And he was not mistaken. When Carthage was destroyed, when the last enemy came, uh, the last enemy to Rome fell, the Roman Republic was delivered from its great cause of anxiety, and a crowd of disastrous evils resulted from the prosperous condition of things. In other words, they fell prey to a sluggish tranquility. That's a great line, isn't it? They had nothing to worry about. All their wants were provided, and they fell into a sluggish tranquility. The Bible says a little bit about this when it says that uh, the people of God God gave them all their requests, but he sent a leanness into their soul. So you can be full on the body, have everything you want in the body, but you be lacking in the soul. 
or your soul can be full. And that usually means you're going to be lacking something uh, that you want. Sometimes the things that we think are good are not necessarily good for the heart. And over the next coming weeks or months, you and I will be deprived of many, many things that we call good. Schedules disrupted, places of work changed, wealth lost, jobs threatened, health threatened. And this, uh, just the tip of the iceberg, lives lost. I don't mean to suggest that we call bad things good. No, a loss of wealth, loss of health, loss of work. These are bad things. But I am suggesting that God often uses bad things to work his strange ways in our hearts. We don't want these things. These are not good things for us, but God often can work his way in our hearts because his ways are not like our ways. And he usually works his strange work in our heart through weakness. Weaknesses like the ones that you and I are encountering now and will encounter in the coming months. It's not automatic just because you're going through a season of weakness does not mean you're automatically going to come through a saint. You know, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So we have to walk through a period of weakness in the way that the Psalm, 30, Psalm 37 describes. Don't worry. Trust God and do good. And as we walk through a period of weakness with these things in mind, then we will come out having God worked his strange work, his, his work in our heart through these strange, through his strange ways, through our weakness. Let's ask God to write these things upon our hearts. Let's ask God to remind us of the strange ways in which he works through the weak things, through the cross. In order to affect his goal, the transformation of our heart. And as we walk through a period of enforced weakness, may God work his strange work.